Hey, thanks, Jim, for bringing us our reading this morning. And thanks, uh, Luke and Archer and Owen and Violet there. Just been able to say good day to you guys. Uh, really good to be able to see your faces and, and stream you into our homes. Hey, want to just pray again, and then we're going to jump into our passage that Jim's just read to us this morning. Loving God, we thank you uh, that we are still able to gather around your word, uh, to hear it read to us, and now to be able to look into it and, and fossick around in there and, and see how it applies to our lives. And we pray that your spirit uh, would move in our hearts and confront us with your truth and, and move us uh, uh, with greater affection for you as we realize your love for us in Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, you'll notice that we had the same reading this week as we had last week. And last week we, we looked at this passage and we spent uh, some time looking at how Luke shows us that even from the moment that Jesus stepped onto planet Earth, uh, that his life was one that was lived uh, completely and perfectly uh, according to the law. Uh, uh, that, it, that it never contravened it, never stepped out of place with it. And God had given his people the law uh, for two uh, basic but not exclusive or not limited reasons. And one of those reasons that God had given uh, um, his people the law was for human flourishing, uh, for human well-being. The law, by its design, it, it took care of people. It enriched environments. Uh, it enriched communities and relationships. We saw last week how God had written maternity leave into the lives of, of people. Uh, every command that God has ever given uh, to his people to live out leads to their joy. Uh, that sort of thing. And the second, one of the second main reasons that God had, had given the law to his people uh, was that it was a means through which uh, people showed that they loved God and, and, and that they are, they are approved by God, uh, that they're in right relationship with the God. The law is kept by those who, who loved God and trust God, and, and God approves of those who seek uh, to keep his law. The problem is, our problem is, is that we did and do both very poorly, uh, which in general terms is what the Bible means when it talks about sin, our inability, um, if you like, our rebellion to not live as God has designed it, as God has given us to live, uh, to not live in, in worship and obedience of God, uh, to not live with uh, selflessness and, and care of others, uh, to not live with respect to all people. Uh, the fact that we constantly have to have slogans and social media awareness of things like the fact that black lives matter speaks to this. We, we fail to live as God designed us to live. Uh, the fact that we can't modify our lives by staying at home so that some person that we will never meet, that we will never know, doesn't get a virus that could kill them speaks to this. The law told God's people how to live in relationship with God and with each other, but it also reveals that we don't want to. That sin causes us to be uh, self-centered, uh, to have disordered uh, love priorities. It, it hijacks uh, what our soul should worship. And it's a serious condition because this breach of design brings us or in, brings ruin and chaos into our lives at a, at a horizontal level. It just 
it just creates chaos. But, but far more serious than that is at a vertical level between us and God. What it reveals is that we're at odds with God. We're at war uh, with God. We, we live in willful rebellion to his design. And we say things like we, we want to choose what's appropriate. We want to choose what's appropriate culturally, relationally, economically, sexually, whatever, whatever the lane is. And, and we are our own gods. We are self-sufficient, which brings us under God's judgment. Because not only did in doing that do we de-God God and we jump in and we take his place, uh, this approach to life destroys his beautiful design destroys all that he created it to be and we deface his image bearer we 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 deface each other by living in ways that portray an inaccurate picture of what god's like and how he intended us to be and this is why the bible says things like the wages the outcomes of this kind of life this sin this rebellion are death and that death brings us back into contact with god who will want to know how we approached his law, his design for life, all that he gave to us so that we might know how to live well before him. That is the human condition. Whether we can put a finger on it, uh, whether we can articulate it like that, whether we want to admit it or deny it, resting in our souls is this base note of fear with respect to will we be approved? Will we be accepted by whatever lies on the other side of death? Well, Luke has written his gospel, amongst other reasons, to address this base note of fear and replace it with certainty that that Jesus has come to remove the human condition and to flip it upside down, to reverse all that sin has done and continues to do uh, in our lives. And here is what Luke has told us so far about this child we read these extraordinary things that he's, this, this child is born into poverty, born into obscurity. Uh, but even though that has happened, he's not, not born completely unannounced. Heaven and angels announce his arrival. Um, this child is also spoken of as being born of a virgin, of human flesh, but has divine origins. He is the promise and the hope of the Old Testament all wrapped up in one, come to remove uh, fear and replace it with peace by becoming the perfect law keeper, by by becoming the perfect God lover. And he will use these qualifications to ransom us, to rescue us, to be a a saviour is the language that Luke's been using. Save us from what? Save us from the wrath and the judgment of God towards this sin. We cannot really understand the full reach of God's love until we come to terms with the full scope of what sin has done to us and has infected the human condition. So here we see the word and the promise of God enter into into our human experience. As John puts it, the word has become flesh. It's quite a picture uh, that Luke has already painted in just just two chapters. Uh, Who would have thought we could spend ten weeks uh, in two chapters of Luke? Or me probably, but yeah. Well, every time, every time we hear someone new speak in these two chapters, uh, be it an angel or or some person that's led by the Spirit of God uh, to speak, to prophesy in Luke's Gospel, we are learning a little bit more about Jesus, who he is and what he has come to do. And this morning, 
we're going to meet two more people. Uh, these two people actually get a personal invitation from God to come and bear witness to the fact that Jesus is God's long-awaited salvation of the soul, the remover of fear, the bringer of peace and redemption and, and, and approval of and before God. Luke continues to place uh, this story of Jesus into real history, into real places, real lives. Uh, we're in Jerusalem, we're at the temple, uh, Mary and Joseph, and they're there for Jesus' presentation, and the Holy Spirit has secured uh, two people to come and to bear witness to who Jesus is. You know, the greatness of Jesus and who he is might have been overlooked down there in, in Bethlehem, uh, you know, born out in the back of the inn in the field there. But surely now that we're in Jerusalem, surely now that we're at the temple, uh, some big guns are going to come out and bear witness to just who this child is. However, again, what we see is that this saviour, this child, continues to surround himself with the most... Uh, Unlikely, the most common personalities uh, that you can find. While the testimony around Jesus is extraordinary in these couple of chapters, those delivering it, apart from the odd angel, uh, are desperately ordinary people. You know, Mary and Joseph, a poor teenage girl, a poor, just common, blue-collar worker, a chippy of all things, um, an old priestly couple who, who, who live out on the farm in the hills, and then some shepherds, you know, are brought in to bear witness to who Jesus is. And now uh, we find a man of faith called Simeon and a woman of prayer called Anna. When Jesus is presented at the temple, it's not going to be, you know, the high priest or some religious or political dignitary, uh, some social influencer that's got, you know, like 20K uh, followers on their Insta account, not some, kind, not, not some king of culture. In fact, Herod can't even buy an invite to come and see who Jesus is. Like He keeps ringing, but the Magi keep ghosting his calls, and he can't even get uh, there to see what's going on. The two people who the Holy Spirit has given personal invitations uh, to make sure are people who are to make sure that Jesus is borne witness to are people that are kind of from the margins a little bit. Uh, people for whom social status and cultural demands do not become an obstacle to seeing God's salvation. Luke tells us that now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and that this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen uh, the Lord's Christ, you know, the, the promise of God. And we don't know much about Simeon apart from these words that Luke records here. And most people think that Simeon is old because later on in his song, as he begins his song, and which is actually the, the fourth and final song, the fourth and final hymn of Luke's gospel, uh, here in the birth narrative, he's ready to die. Uh, but the peace about death has nothing to do with his age and everything to do with seeing and perceiving God's salvation in this child, Jesus. Simeon is described as righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is, uh, which is where, the way it's written, that's, that's where his righteousness lies. It's in the fact that he is faithfully waiting for the promises of God uh, to come true. 
Uh, Simeon has organized his life around the promises of God uh, to send a law fulfiller, a prophet, uh, to send a savior of Israel, someone who's going to bring consolation of Israel. He's holding on to these promises. He's holding on to all that God's going to do. It's an extraordinary faith. And this word consolation that we're reading here, it's a word uh, that means uh, comfort. Peace, no fear. It's a word attached to the deliverance of God that's going to come about through his Savior, through, through, through the Messiah of his people. Now this faith that um, Simeon has in this consolation is not a passive faith. It's a public faith. Otherwise he would have just been at home playing Xbox, just sitting in the lounge room uh, waiting for this consolation to come about, not canvassing the temple, uh, looking for potential messiahs. And this faith is also a countercultural faith. While everyone is kind of looking to the seats of power, to the thrones of, 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 Roman, of the Roman Empire, for a Messiah of power and status, Simeon is running around peering into the faces of little babies that are coming into the temple that, that have no power, that have no strength. They need their mum to cart them in. Uh, all the time, he's, he's running around and he's letting people know the Messiah is nigh. Uh, because, and he knows that because an angel of the Lord has promised him that he's going to see uh, the Lord's cross before he's going to die. It's not a distant event. It's about to happen uh, in his lifetime. Uh, Matt Chandler sort of, he, he says, uh, makes his commentary on it. If you want to get a contemporary picture of the kind of person uh, Simeon was in society, uh, think about the dude who stands out the front of Flinders Street uh, Station with that little painted sign, the end is nigh, Jesus is coming. That's the kind of person, that's the kind of edgy person we're dealing with here. Add to that the fact that he's a child snatcher, just takes Jesus from Mary's arms and a real Lion King moment lifts him up and holds him up and starts to give praise to God because his soul is at peace. He has now seen in this child that Mary was holding, he has now seen, which is a word that has is not just about sight, but, but it's about perception. Uh, it's about understanding. It's about, it's about meaning. He has now perceived and seen and understood that the consolation of Israel is at hand in this child. It's a very unique moment. Uh, the Holy Spirit floods a Simeon's soul with the confidence that in this child, he's going to bring about this consolation, this, this long-awaited peace for the people of God. And we have dozens of policies here to stop this kind of behavior uh, happening in our church. And I'm not looking for it to be accepted or, or normative, but I am saying that God is fond of using um, the weak, if you like, the common, the, those that are marginalized. Uh, what's essential is their character, not their social status. This man is righteous and devout because of his great faith. Uh, that he that he has in the promises of God, God is fond of using the common and those that are weak to put here to demonstrate and convey His great strength. His message of salvation comes through the weak, so that the humble are able to hear it, so that the broken are able to approach it, so that the needy will see a Savior that's coming to them, that's being. Uh, presented to them on, on their soil, on their turf, on, on common ground, approachable, knowable.
Simeon understands that God never intended to come compliant to a social expectation, but had always promised to come as the consolation for the souls of people. Not to give us more of what we already have, but to reconnect us with what we've lost. Peace with God. Uh, No fear in the soul. When Simeon's eyes fall on Jesus, the Holy Spirit lets him know that he has seen God's promised salvation. And even though, uh, unlike you and I, a Simeon was out without the full story of how Jesus would do that, he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this child will be the means through which Simeon is approved by God. Not through his own righteousness, not through his own devout life, but through his trust in uh, God's promises attached to this child. When Simeon bursts into song um, from the deep joy of this realization uh, as it floods over him, the first lyric of joy that comes out of his mouth is that he can depart in peace. He can die uh, because God has kept his word. And we often hear people use this kind of hype hyperbolic language when they experience something they've longed for that they've waited for for a long time you know ah now that i have seen carlton win their 17th premiership you know one more than collingwood one more than essendon i can now die in peace or now that i've been you know now that i've been reconciled with my children i can die in peace something that was causing distress has now met consolation simeon hasn't just been there at an event He has perceived what that event means, what it means for him and his own soul. Simeon knows he can now face the lawgiver, God, because this child has dealt with the fear uh, that his own failure to keep the law gives birth to in even someone like Simeon. Simeon, aided by the Holy Spirit, perceives that his imperfect life will now be covered by Jesus' perfect life. So that when he dies, everything about his life that should condemn him to death is taken care of in this child. No fear in death. Every small moment when he did not live up to uh, the way God had designed uh, for him to live will be disarmed of its accusations against him because of what this child will go on to do. Simeon can face death knowing that because of his trust in God's promises attached to Jesus... He will now meet God as a friend. He will now meet God as a son. Someone who is approved by God, not as a rebel deserving death. And even now at this early stage, Jesus is bringing peace into people's souls. Simeon is telling us that the peace of the soul, the consolation of the soul that we all long for, is found in the promises that are attached to this child Jesus. It's found in embracing Jesus into your life. Now, we don't know what happened to Simeon after this. We don't know if he actually you know, crawled out of the temple and, and died or if he actually went on to live and see the cross and see the means, the ultimate means through which Jesus uh, would pay for his sin and bring forgiveness and consolation into his life. We do know that he prepares Mary's heart for it. We do know that he prepares Mary's heart for the cross when he tells her that the sword will pierce her own soul. Simeon knows that, is, is that while there is much joy attached to, to Jesus, there will also be grief. There will also be suffering. The peace that Jesus brings to our souls 
will mean that we come into opposition with the world, with, with a system that, that, that doesn't want to live as God has designed it to live. Well, as Simeon's song continues, and again, Simeon's songs like the other songs, it's just tapping into Scripture. This one's full of quotes uh, from Isaiah. Simeon reveals that the consolation of a soul attached to Jesus is not some kind of secret, but it's been made known for years, hence the, the quotes out of Isaiah. Um, it's been in the law and the prophets. They all pointed to it, and that God uh, has been uh, preparing this moment before all the people, like this hasn't been a secret. He's been talking about it for for centuries. And that this offer of salvation, this peace with God, will not now merely be confined to Israel, but it's going to be for all peoples, for Jews and Gentiles, for all people. The qualification for it is not is not, you know, your piety, uh, your religious heritage or your race, but seeing Jesus for who God claims him to be. The only way to know peace with God, the only means to remove the fear of death in the human heart from sin, the only way to live as a friend with God in in, in this life and indeed the next. The question is, what have you done with Jesus? Have you seen him? Have you perceived him? Have Have you approached him and embraced him? As Simeon is in full flight, Luke lets us know that there was also a prophetess, Anna. This is typical of Luke and the Bible in general. In a culture that that pushes down the dignity and value of women, Scripture constantly affirms it, constantly uh, lifts it up. Anna is pictured as a woman who is a model of worship and prayer, despite her life actually being full of grief and loss. Like Simeon, she approaches from the margins. She's, um, she's a bit of a social oddbod, if you like. She's a prophetess, uh, which is kind of rare. There's only seven of them uh, in the Old Testament. Like a prophet, they speak for God. She has the rare privilege of speaking the will of God into the lives of his people. Luke tells us that she is advanced in years, which is just a nice way of saying she's cooked, go and dig her a hole, she's ready to die. She was married young, he tells us, uh, probably in her early teens. Luke's comment that she was a virgin serves to highlight that her devotion to God in her early life. And after seven years of marriage, her husband dies and she is left a widow. And that's a hard pill to swallow when you're in your early 20s. But rather than get bitter with God, rather than get bitter at God, she presses in to God. Luke tells us that the rest of her life, possibly the next 60 to 80 years, depending on how you read that translation, was spent in worship, fasting and prayer, night and day, never departing from the temple. She's kind of like that crazy charismatic lady, you know, that crazy charismatic member of your church that we wish we were all free enough to be like, but we're kind of too Baptist, too cool for school, so we don't go into that space. As Simeon holds up Jesus, this prophetess who speaks for God begins to tell everyone who is waiting themselves for the redemption of Jerusalem, which is just another way of saying the consolation of Israel. It's time to give thanks. It's time for you guys to go and grab a tambourine like me and praise God. The inference being that this child is what we've all been waiting for. We can now live lives of thankfulness and gratitude and praise to God. And while Simeon is a model 
of peace that is, that is found in Jesus that allows us to die well. Anna is a model of how that peace found in Jesus lets us live well. Our lives become a song of gratitude, of giving faith, of, of living um, you know, a little bit countercultural, if you like. You know, we get to see the whole story of Jesus, not merely these revelations around his birth that, that Simeon and Anna had, but also we get to see the realities attached to his death and to his resurrection, knowing for sure that we have forgiveness of sins, knowing that God, who sees us at our very worst in, in this life and still loved us in Jesus, couldn't possibly abandon us in death, uh, continues to come to us in this life to live well. You know, if, if people like Simeon and Anna, with, with so few helps and so many discouragements, live such lives of faith, how much more ought we, with the finished Bible, with a full gospel, be able to, to live well? Let's strive to be like them, uh, full of faith, exercised in worship, fasting and prayer, looking forward to and longing for the day when Jesus comes again but not in a passive way, in an active way. You know, the same Holy Spirit that, uh, that enabled Simeon and Anna to live lives of faith and worship and prayer, uh, to live well before a culture that wasn't conducive to, to their faith, is, is the same Holy Spirit that comes to us now and equips us to do likewise, to live a life in consolation, to live a life in peace that frees us up to live well and frees us up to die well. You know, as we come to communion this morning, I hope you've been able to uh, grab uh, some communion and, and just sit it there uh, with your families and that. As we come to this communion table this morning, we get to reflect on all that Jesus has done to bring peace into our souls so that we can live abundantly in this life and so that we can face death without fear. You know, in the middle of these two witnesses about Jesus about who he is and what he does. Simeon also reveals that Jesus will be an object of opposition. Jesus will cause the rise and the fall of many. As God's Messiah, Jesus will also expose the true stance of people's hearts towards God. You know, people may you know, speak well of God. They may like God. You know, I like God. Speak well, even pray to him. But that's not the issue that brings approval to God. The issue is what have they done with Jesus? God sent Jesus into the world to be the means of whether or not somebody loves God, sees, perceives what God is doing in the world. That's going to be the difference that either brings peace to their soul or desolation. Nobody takes the news, or very few people it seems, take the news that they are enemies with God well. Despite their goodness, they are enemies with God. Despite their affluence, they are enemies with God. Despite their power and their prestige, their religious piety, hearing this news that without Christ in their lives, they're in a position of enmity with God. Not everyone hears the news that they need saving with joy. So there's opposition to this, to this news. Grace is a hard pill to swallow for a proud heart. Simeon's prophecy about opposition to Jesus shows it from the beginning that who and what God had sent Jesus in the world to be and do included his suffering, included his rejection. It was not an unexpected development 
Not a surprise, but the fulfillment of all that Jesus did on our behalf. Not only did Jesus fulfill the law and love God perfectly, he also bore the effects of sin, rejection, uh, uh, despised, being despised, but hung on a cross, guilt, where he's substituted his perfect life for our imperfect life where he bore the wrath of God so that we could know the peace of God, where he was cut off from God so that we could come near to God, so that we could have consolation of the soul and live well, faithfully, prayerfully, worshipfully, waiting for his return. If you have your communion elements there, what would be great is to just take a moment, uh, you know, in your families and serve each other uh, those elements, you know, and you can break the bread and just share that with each other, which represents, you know, his body broken for us. And to share um, the wine there with each other, just serve each other. And then, if you like, in your own time, a, a little quiet time of prayer. And we give him thanks for the, for the salvation that's found in Jesus, for the peace of the soul that comes to us. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you this morning uh, for this for this moment in the temple where we hear uh, from Simeon and Anna that Jesus is this long-awaited peace, that he's come in the world to, to remove the desolation of the soul and, and give it joy and peace, that we can live well and that we can die without fear, and that we can know that we will be approved by you because of what Jesus has done for us. And we thank you for that this morning. And as we share this little meal, this simple little meal that reminds us ultimately of what Jesus did on the cross, uh, we're thankful for that. And we just pray these things now and um, offer it all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.